0: What I'm about to tell you, it involves something very large.
1: Everyone in this country is a victim of corporate crime by the time they finish breakfast. Yes! Things are going on I don't approve of. I mean, I feel real bad about that. <laughs> Corn goes in one end and profit comes out the other. Weird, right? It's not just lysine, it's citric, it's gluconate. There was a guy who left the company because he wouldn't do it. He was forced out. The gluconate guy, he's out of a job. Would you be willing to wear a wire? We need your help.
0: Welcome to Act a product of the Acton Institute for the Study of Religion and Liberty. I'm Eric Cohn, executive producer. That was from the trailer for the 2009 comedy-drama film The Informant, directed by Steven Soderbergh and starring Matt Damon, Scott Bakula, Joel McHale, and Melanie Linsky. It's a a wild-based-on-a-true-story film about Mark Whitaker. In the early 1990s, Whitaker was the corporate vice president and the president of the bioproducts division of the agribusiness giant Archer Daniels Midland. Whitaker would go on to become an informant for the FBI in an investigation into a conspiracy to price-fix lysine, an essential amino acid. At the same time he was informing on his employer to the FBI, Whitaker was also embezzling $9 million from ADM in a kickbacks and money laundering scheme. It all came to an end a few years later when ADM settled federal charges for more than $100 million and paid hundreds of millions more to plaintiffs and customers to settle class action lawsuits. In 1998, Whitaker pled guilty to tax evasion and fraud and was sentenced to nine years in prison. But what marked the end of this tumultuous period in Mark Whitaker's life also marked the beginning of his journey to his Christian faith, redemption, and a series of second chances. Today, I talk with Mark Whitaker about his time as a corporate executive, his time as an FBI informant, his time in federal prison, and how all of this brought him to his Christian faith that he now integrates into his corporate work. You can find additional resources in the show notes for this episode, as well as find previous episodes of Actonline Line on our website at acton.org slash And if you like this program, you can help us reach even more listeners by sharing it with a friend and leaving us a five-star review on Apple Podcasts. We welcome your comments as well. Act in Line is available on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you listen. Mark Whitaker is an Ivy League PhD and the highest-ranked executive of any Fortune 500 company to become a whistleblower in U.S. history and is responsible for uncovering the ADM price-fixing scandal in the early 1990s. His undercover work with the FBI during the ADM scandal was the inspiration for the major motion picture, The Informant, starring Matt Damon as Whitaker. Today, he is executive director at Coca-Cola Consolidated. Mark Whitaker, welcome to Act Line. Yeah, thank you. It's good to be here. So... Mark, tell us a little bit about yourself, where you're from, and then how you came to end up at Archer Daniels Midland in Decatur, Illinois in the 1990s.
1: Yeah, I grew up in uh, in the Cincinnati, Ohio area near Kings Island, amusement park. Your listeners may know where that is, maybe 30 minutes north of Cincinnati, and and I met my wife during that time, met in junior high, and and we went to our high school proms together, and and been married uh, forty-four years here, uh, coming up here uh, very soon here, and which is a miracle, really, for our marriage. There's the vibe about what I'm about ready to ready to disc- about ready to, to share uh, with your audience today. And went to high state university for my bachelor's and master. was a good student, was senior class president uh, of my class, and. Uh, was a good student and went to Ohio State University for my bachelor's and master's, a lot of that on scholarship. Got a full scholarship also to Cornell University in biochemistry, specializing in nutritional biochemistry uh, at Cornell and finished my Ph.D. at age uh, 25. The average was about age uh, low 30s at the time. And so I was Ph.D. student at age 22 at Cornell. And finished my PhD in biochemistry, and at the time when I graduated '83, is when the biotech industry was exploding. Genentech was just starting, and a lot of the pharmaceutical companies uh, were were starting biotech divisions. So, you know, prior to that, probably in the '70s, most most individuals that had a PhD in biochemistry probably went to be professors or researchers at at the university at university level or government, but. At this time, it was very industrial and lots of corporate opportunities, and even to the point where most CEOs of biotech and pharmaceutical companies were PhDs in biochemistry more than they were MBAs. And so I really, it was an amazing time to graduate in 83, and had my first job with Rawson is now owned by Nestle's. And uh, then I joined a company and became vice president of a company called Degusa, now known as Avani, because this is. 30 plus years ago was in Frankfurt Germany for almost 4 years and when I was in Frankfurt Germany I was involved with doing uh, joint ventures for Av- Avonic and uh, and I was working with a company called ADM Archer Daniels Midland and we were looking to build a plant for, to produce lysine we had the technology but ADM at Avonic we had the technology fermentation technology but but ADM Archer Daniels Midland they had the the raw materials it takes glucose from cornstarch and soy flour from soybeans and and that's really the raw materials that they worked with to produce ethanol and some of the fermentation products they produce especially ethanol and so we were talking to them about building the joint, a joint plant together either in Europe or Asia and had many discussions to the point where I got fairly close to the leadership there the CEO and and the COO, and after working on this joint venture project for almost a year, uh, they end up making an offer that I that I couldn't refuse. I was at that time I was 32 years old, and and it was all about my whole focus was moving up the corporate ladder. And I mean, I wasn't even thinking of a life of significance then. I was thinking only a life of success. I wanted to become CEO or COO of a Fortune 500 company. Here, ADM was number 56 on the Fortune 500 at the time, almost $70 billion in revenue, 30,000 employees. And so I ended up joining them as divisional president of their biotech division called the bioproducts, which is mostly fermentation products, lysine, citric acid, lactic acid, anything you could produce from corn fermentation. So I ended up joining them as president of that division and shortly after became also corporate vice president of the, of the company and an officer of the company shortly after that. So that's how I, I got to know ADM, is through this joint venture discussion when I was with Vonnik.
0: So since this will be integral to the story as we go on, what is lysine? What is it used in? What is it used for?
1: Yeah, lysine's a, a billion. this is then. When I joined him, it was 1989. So you're talking over three decades ago. Lysine was a billion-dollar market then. And we also produced citric acid from... Fermentation, which also became one of the products involved in in uh, in a scandal and a price fixing scheme that we're going to be talking about here in a little more detail in a minute. But lysine's used in in animal in animal feed, mostly in poultry feed, some swine feed. But it's a billion dollar market, and we became the largest lysine producer in the world in a rather rather quick time. And then citric acid is used mostly in beverages.
0: So it's uh the 1990s, you're in Decatur, Illinois. And uh, we mentioned before we started talking that this is actually where um, uh, you and I have a a small connection here. That was before I was in Decatur, but I lived in Decatur, Illinois for a while. Uh, ADM is huge there. Um, You can see them as you uh, drive uh, out to that area of town. Uh, You can often smell them. Um, I remembered I went to Milliken University in Decatur and I was considered to be one of the ideal recruits because on none of the days that I visited the college, Before I started attending, could you smell the soybean processing odor in the air? Uh, And it's very distinctive. If you never smelled it before, it's um, uh, you would definitely know it if you uh, if you smelled it. So, talk about uh, what is going on at Archer Daniels Midland at that time in the '90s, especially with regard to, uh, as you mentioned, lysine.
1: Yeah, well, the biotech industry, especially the lysine business, became one of really the fastest growing businesses of of uh, ADM. And we quickly started adding other products, citric acid, lactic acid, and sodium gluconate. So it became multiple products in that division uh, fairly quickly. Uh, That all came from fermentation the same way the low lysine is produced. The other products, more food additives and lysine, more of a feed feed additive. So we built this $300 million plant. We invested close to a billion dollars in the biotech industry. Some of them we bought existing businesses like citric acid we purchased from pfizer so it was a 250 million dollar uh, business and we purchased that from pfizer and some of them we built from scratch lysine was one that we built from scratch building a 300 million dollar uh lysine plant that became the largest lysine plant in the world at that time
0: so this is a huge business um you mentioned this is where the uh what becomes the ADM price fixing scandal starts to enter the picture. So, describe that to us. What uh, what was going on there? What was uh, ADM doing, and what was the effect of fixing the price of lysine?
1: Well, first off, uh, for a couple of years, it was just build the plants, buy the Pfizer citric acid business. So I really didn't know. Besides a couple of rumors I'd hear in the hallways, I really didn't hear anything about price fixing at all. Till about a couple of years with the company, and then I started hearing more about it, and, and then I received a a, a a bonus when I got promoted to corporate vice president of a company, in addition to being divisional president, and that's when they really started sharing with me about some of the cartels that they've had, and I could really feel, and I could really tell that if I'm going to move up in the company, at that time, our CEO was 75 years old, our president was 69, and and i just 34 years of old. I've only been there a couple of years. I was 34 by that point. But it was really clear that if I was going to move up in the company, that I was going to have to be mentored to take over some of the price-fixing activities. So it was really a couple of years at the company. So it would have been 1992 when I started getting involved with price-fixing, actually April of 92. And I joined the company in October of 89.
0: So- what what was going on? How were they uh, how were they fixing the price of lysine? And what was the effect? You know, for me, the consumer, um, you know, what what would have been the effect or uh, to me?
1: Yeah, well, it, well, and it wasn't just pricing. They were charged on price fixing to several products. So over and above lysine in this in this case, the effect on that's really who it affected is the consumers because when companies like Tyson Foods pays higher for their lysine or Kellogg's for an ingredient that goes into breakfast cereal. When companies, food and feed companies, pay higher for the ingredients, they have their profit margin built in. So it's going to get passed to the consumer. So the consumer would have been paying some higher prices uh, during that during that time. And I was learning that uh, boy, they were pros at it. They were doing price fixing on other ingredients uh, prior to lysine. Uh, and, and that's where they show, shared with me they were very successful at it. But because of their ages, I had to be mentored if I was going to continue. They didn't say it that way. They didn't say, if you don't join, do, do this, you can't be part of the company. But it was obvious to me the only way I was going to move up in the company if I was mentored by my leadership and the vice chairman's who I reported to
0: so how do they how do they go about doing this? I mean, do they just get uh, a whole bunch of people in a room and decide on what the price is going to be? how did How did it work in you know the actual function of it? Yeah, it,
1: it was it was like that. absolutely like that. We get together with our competitors, which is to get together, with your competitors in itself is not illegal. But when you get together with your competitors and you start talking about prices and you start getting involved with what's called collusion where you actually work with your competitors, and you sit with them, and you set the prices of an ingredient like we were with lysine, and you agree to go lockstep and increase in the prices together. And by doing that, the reason why prices were driven down is because there was a lot of competition, and that's what capitalism is built on, is competition in what's called a free market. And that's what drives prices down to be more reasonable for consumers. Now, when- when competitors are colluding together, when collusion is happening, you're actually agreeing to a a certain volume to cut back the amount of volume that you're trying to produce of lysine in this case. And if you cut back, we would increase the prices. So therefore we kind of control the market. We almost like cut up the pie. There's a certain amount of market and that's the pie. And we decided what how many tons we would each get but in doing that, we would drive the price up, so it was worth having a a, a let's say ten percent, for example, lower volume of product that you're selling, but you have a price that's three or four times, three or four fold higher. I mean, Lysine one time got to sixty cents a pound uh, when we were competing against each other. I mean, it was a bloodbath. And when the price expanded happened, it would get up to two fifty to three dollars a pound. That's how many fold higher, you're talking four or five fold higher price. And that's what collusion does. And, and the consumers pay for that.
0: You uh, reminded me of the quote from Adam Smith's uh, Wealth of Nations, people of the same trade seldom meet together, even for merriment and diversion. But the conversation ends in a conspiracy against the public or in some contrivance to raise prices. Uh, so really a uh, example of that operating in the real world.
1: Yes, it's, a, it's definitely a real life example. And I tell you where I was at in my in my early 30s. I mean, with having a 75-year-old CEO and a 69-year-old president, and they were there 30 years plus, both of them, I kind of felt this is what the way business is done. At 34, I didn't finish my PhD, though. At Cornell, I was 25. So I'm nine years out of college. I started thinking this is how the real world's done. This is how business is done. So I started justifying, just like they told me, to be in the commodities business, this is what you have to do. And I started using their same arguments to justify it in my mind.
0: When did you become aware that the FBI was looking into price fixing at ADM and these other competitors?
1: Well, the FBI was never looking into prior to that uh, the FBI was definitely not looking at price fixing matter of fact price fixing was going on for years not on lysine because lysine was a new product but on other products for years uh, prior and it was proven in court prior to a matter of fact even 15 years earlier they were actually charged on a carbon dioxide carbon dioxide uh Ah, uh, price fixing scheme. So there was even some some even civil charges, civil lawsuits, even p- years prior to that to that case. So the FBI was not looking at that. We had problems with one with our lysine plant, and we were having lots of contamination problems. So the FBI was actually assisting us. ADM actually brought the FBI in, and that's when and they're helping us. So they were helping us with some fermentation problems that we were having, some contamination where we would where we would spend $70,000 per fermenter on raw materials, but nothing would come out because the bacteria was contaminated. And so the FBI was helping us with that. And I shared with my wife, uh, this is several months later, I started being a mentor for Price fixing in April of 92. And by November of 92, the FBI is actually working with ADM trying to help us. And it's not the first time the FBI was helping us. Actually, when I joined the company in 89, they were helping us on a Chicago Board of Trade fraud case, the FBI was. So it was not, ADM was such a large company, it was not unusual for the FBI and probably the largest company in Decatur, Illinois. So it was not unusual for the FBI to help uh, ADM. And really the price fixing case started happening when I shared with my wife, Ginger, and I shared with her, how it was odd that that the FBI is helping us on this a couple hundred thousand dollar case. And there's this huge hundreds of millions of dollars case going on right out from under their noses. And that's really when the price fixing case started when I shared it with my wife, because she was really troubled by what I was sharing with her. And this would have been November 5th, 1992, to the point where it became a several hour discussion, a several hour conversation. And even to the point where she went back in her study, she was a Christian at age 30. I was not a Christian uh, during that time. And she went back in her study and she said she's gonna pray about it. We talk about it later. And she literally came out after about an hour of praying and said, Mark, we've got to tell the FBI, they're working with you on a case that's minuscule to try to help you and some, and, and there's a bigger fraud, right doing, going on right out from under their noses. And that's when the price fixing happened, when my wife really put her foot down, said, you're either telling the FBI or I am. I mean, she was that adamant about it. She was really troubled by it.
0: So you tell the FBI, um, tell us what happens next and how you end up becoming an informant in this case.
1: Yeah, I end up spending several hours uh, with the FBI sharing most of that with my wife by my side the day that I shared with my wife. And this would have been November, as I mentioned, November nineteen ninety two. And when I shared with the FBI at the end of it, I remember my wife saying, "Well, look, my husband did the right thing. He can go home now, right? I mean, he's only involved something for a few months. It's been going on. Price has been going on there for years at, at ADM. So it's not something he started, not something he initiated. It's something he was brought into. And the FBI was very adamant that that I." I either have to work with them to help go after the kingpins that are mentoring me and teaching me how to do this, or I would be arrested myself because I confessed to a federal crime, breaking antitrust laws. So that's the choice I really had, to be arrested or work with the FBI.
0: So you begin working with the FBI. What was that that experience like? What did you do? Uh, How long did it go on? Tell us about that period of time.
1: Yeah, I started working wearing a wire uh, the next day uh, for the FBI uh, and basically basically, um, getting audio tapes on the the kingpins that were teaching me how to do it. My supervisors teaching me how to do the price fixing. fixing. And then also they'd have a green lamp when, when I tell them when the bigger meeting, when we're actually meeting with competitors, not the day-to-day at the ADM office, that was all audio. With recorders that were attached to me. I had one attached to me with an athletic band on my back. I had another one that, they didn't have the equipment 30 years ago they'd have today. I had one in a briefcase and a third one in a notebook, three different recorders. And just in case one didn't function properly. And so that was what I would do in the office to capture any price fixing discussion that was occurring in the office. But when the actual price fixing meetings happened, and there were several, sometimes a couple a month, I would tell the FBI where the meeting was going to where it was going to be, they would have a green lamp that had a video camera because they wanted to show a jury what was going on, not just the jury to hear the audio tapes I was making. And they had a green lamp that had a video camera and they have that have that placed in that room, in that conference room. They get a court order, get the green lamp in there and they would be in the next room and to control the camera with remote control, control the camera in that green lamp. And I tell you, it's amazing. It always looked to me like a green lamp that looked like it came from a yard sale. And this would be in, in hotels like the Four Seasons Hotel in Chicago. And this was in a <laughs> Maui, Hawaii. And, you know, these five-star hotels. And this green lamp looked like it came from a yard sale. In some cases, they'd be seeing it two or three times a month, the co-defendants. <laughs> and I always wondered, uh, boy, they're going to notice this lamp. But in three years, they never noticed it. And I tell you something, it's something that shared me that really showed me clearly as an informant that green blinds you. They did not see what was five feet in front of them after even three years of that green lamp showing up in multiple meetings.
0: So three years you spent as an informant uh, for the FBI on this case. Um, So uh, bring us to the point there where, you know, the FBI, I guess, steps in and, and takes action. Um, and uh, if this is the right juncture, uh, tell us about how uh, you end up um, getting caught up in a legal case uh, as well. It's parallel to all of this.
1: Yes. but well, what happened after a couple of years uh, working with them, literally within a few months of working with them, they had a full immunity agreement signed by the U.S. Attorney in Chicago, full immunity, never to be charged. Very appreciative. They would tell me, and they and they did a Discovery Channel documentary where they even expressed this clearly. The agents would tell me, they "said Mark, your life's in danger. If someone caught you or had a wire, your life could be in danger." This is an international cartel involving hundreds of millions, and even over, over years, billions of dollars. So this is a serious case. People could be going to prison, which they did. And your life would be in danger. And I tell you that I was falling apart. I mean, neighbors would see me blowing the driveway off at three in the morning during thunderstorms with a with a suit and tie on. In the recorder, the microphone still taped to my chest. And I'd be blowing the driveway off at three in the morning during thunderstorms with a gas leaf blower. I mean, I lost lots of weight. I mean, I was having a nervous breakdown. A lot of it were them saying, Mark, if these guys catch you, your life's in danger. They could kill you. Thinking what could happen to me, what could happen to my family, and a lot of it thinking someday they're going to know that I did this. And this is one of the most powerful CEOs in the world. Good friends with President Clinton, uh, was on the phone uh, on a regular basis with President Clinton, and and, and you're, we're talking about a billionaire who owned almost five percent of ADM, the largest single shareholder of ADM. Uh, a man in his mid seventies and a powerful with with several former presidents and the current president of the United States then. So that weighed heavily on my mind during that time. What's what are they going to do when they learn that I'm a witness uh, against them? So the FBI is telling me it's coming close to an end. Um, they're making it clear. And my wife was making it clear, too, that my future at ADM is 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 is, is very unlikely to continue because the. The CEO has his daughter on the board, his son's on the board, his nephew's on the board. So a lot of family members, this is before the Sarbanes-Oxley bill came about in 2002. I'm wearing a wire. At the end of that's 1995. The Sarbanes-Oxley bill came about in 2002. So they were not independent boards at that time. It was very much a family board, either family or friends. So they said, even if the CEO doesn't survive, Mark, the board is going to survive, and your chances to stay there is very unlikely. And I started thinking about, well, who's going to hire somebody that just wore a wire against their own company for three years? It'd be easier to get a job as a felon than it would be as someone wore a wire. And I started thinking about that. And I started looking at my stock options, thinking about, I was so obsessed with that lifestyle. I I bought the CEO's home. I had the home that Dwayne Andreas lived in. And John Daniels, the former CEO before him, lived in that home. It was a mansion with an eight-car garage. I had it filled with eight cars, and I had access to the the corporate jets. And I mean, it was like being Justin Bieber before Justin Bieber. And I was addicted, really obsessed to that lifestyle. I couldn't imagine life without it. And I started thinking about, well, how am I going to keep this lifestyle when ADM fires me? Which it was clear by the FBI that they would fire me because the board uh, were family and friends well who, how am I going to maintain that lifestyle? who's going to hire me? So I started looking about how much how much stock I had and how much funds I had and how long I could last and for a couple of years to get back on my feet and I looked at my stock options and a lot of my stock options, most of them were either three years or five year exercise date and I had several but most of them were not at a date that I could exercise right then. But I looked at the value of those, it was several million dollars if I could exercise them, almost nine million dollars if I could exercise them right then. But some of them to get that was about a year away from that date. Well, the FBI was telling me it was the last two or three months of wearing a, a wire. So I wasn't going to get a year to exercise those. So I started thinking about a plan about how I could how I could write checks to myself and basically exercise those. So I ended up writing five checks. For nine million dollars, I felt like if it ever came up, if it ever came up, and if it ever became a case, I'd have these stock, all these stock option documents signed by our general counsel, by our CEO, that I could prove that they owed me that. If I, you know, if I, if they had not fired me uh, for being an informant, and uh, and I thought that would be my severance package, money that I felt they owed me a year later anyway. And boy, what poor thinking that was, because I wrote those checks. And I ended up being another whole case. I had immunity on the price fixing. But now by violating a crime that I had not told the FBI about, it became another whole case, a fraud case on me for that $9 million.
0: So the fraud case uh, against you, um, you, know, you can tell us the story, but uh, you, you plead guilty. What happens uh, What happens after that?
1: Well, what happened is the, the, uh, the FBI agents understood they said, you know, with the stock, with the arguments that I was using, what my thinking was, but they said market's wrong. You're going to lose this, this plea agreement. And we had some very cordial discussions. And they said they're going to go get me the best plea agreement they can get me. And they went to the U.S. Attorney in Chicago. And because of all my help on the price fixing, they had a, a plea agreement that was two to three years sentence. But they said they were going to have a mitigating hearing set with the judge a mitigating hearing, and with this mitigating hearing, the FBI agents, all three of them, would line up one at a time and share about how I risked my life, how I wore a wire for almost three years. In the end, they said, we feel strongly you're going to get a six-month sentence. The mitigating from a two- or three-year plea down to six months for all my cooperation. And And we were sitting with my lawyer in Chicago, who became a judge shortly after that, And my wife was begging me to to sign it. And I looked at Ginger and I said, Ginger, you're the reason why I'm this mess in the first place. I'm gonna do the opposite you want me to do. And I did not sign that original uh, plea agreement. And I ripped that plea agreement up. And I literally went to court for almost two years before pleading out again, But I went to court almost for two years and not taking responsibility, not signing that original plea agreement to the point where I did eight and a half years on a 10 year sentence when I could have done six months.
0: So you end up doing eight and a half years in prison. Uh, What was that experience like? What was your life like during that period of time?
1: Well, before going to prison, uh, several months before, I was so depressed. Now that I was going to do eight and a half years when I, would have had immunity if I did the right thing. But even with the huge mistake of writing these five checks for $9 million, they had a deal of a lifetime, six months in federal prison, a Martha Stewart sentence uh, in a federal prison. And by me ripping that up and fighting that case through the courts for a couple of years, and now losing that plea agreement by not signing that original plea agreement, and now having eight and a half years to do on a 10-year sentence, there's no parole, in the federal system, you get 15% off good behavior. So it's eight and a half years on a 10 year sentence. I was so depressed a few months before I went to prison, I tried to to kill myself. I tried to take my own life. I wrote a letter to Ginger and my kids and I was hopeless and helpless and thought I wasn't even willing to do six months in prison. How am I gonna do eight plus years? And I tried to take my own life and I was hospitalized and I was treated uh, for post-traumatic stress disorder and heavily medicated for several weeks and uh, had to see a psychiatrist a couple of times a week for several weeks uh, because of they felt for wearing a wire for three years and just falling apart. And and someone reached out to me, read about this in the newspaper, especially tearing the plea agreement up and now only to get eight and a half years when I could have done a, a few months. And his name was Ian Howes. See, this is before prison. CFO of a pharmaceutical company, was part of a group also called CBMC, Christian Businessmen Connection. He reached out to me, a stranger, and he started discipling me and sharing me about Jesus and sharing about God. And so before going to prison, it started giving me some hope. I didn't become a a Christian then, but it started giving me some hope even before I went to prison. And then shortly after I entered prison, a man who read about me in the Washington Post, his name was Chuck Colson. And he read about me in the Washington Post and he saw what he was reading, a lot of my story in his story. He became White House counsel under President Nixon. I became a divisional president of one of the largest companies in the world. Both of us were in our early thirties at that time. And he went to prison for the Watergate scandal. President Nixon was pardoned. So President Nixon did not go to prison, but the others under him, Attorney General, FBI Director, Chuck Colson, White House counsel went to prison. And that was twenty years before my case. That was in the seventies. I would have been in prison in nineteen ninety eight, and I just turned forty years of age. And Chuck Colson started discipling me, and he helped with the block that I had. I shared with him what I was learning from me and house and this was early. I'm talking a few weeks into prison, and I started sharing what I was learning from me and house He said, "Mark, have you have you given your life to to Jesus? Have you surrendered your life to God?" And I said, I want to, but I have eight years of college. Even some professors saying, if you believe in God, you can't be a a scientist. I had one say, if you believe in God, you can't be in his class. I never met one Christian professor in eight years, not once. So that was a block for me. And that's where Ian Housy gave me hope. But I had a science block. I heard evolution and Darwinism and Big Bang Theory, everything that there was no God. And I shared that with Chuck and Chuck went to Brown University uh, and I went to Cornell and he had learned a lot of the same things in his college years. And he asked me, I'll never forget the question he asked me. He said, Mark, and this would have been a few weeks into my federal prison sentence in 1998. He said, do you think there's uh, a scientist that believes in God? And I said, no, I don't think there's a Ph.D. scientist that believes in God. And he started Show me proof after proof, evidence after evidence and disciple me some of the best scientists in the world that believe in God and the universities never shared. It. Even Albert Einstein wrote an article that only God could create the universe and God could create man. And Sir Isaac Newton wrote as much about Jesus as he did about science. And Francis Collins, who discovered a human genome, is a Christian. None of those, and I could name a dozen more, and none of those were ever shared at the, at the university level for me.
0: What did uh, what did Chuck Colson's friendship mean to you?
1: Oh, it meant it meant everything. Chuck Colson was like a father to me and discipled me and and mentored me and especially helped break that science block, showing me some of the uh, best scientists in the world that believe in God. But that was never shared at the university, and I became a Christian in, in June of ninety eight. I was only three months into prison. And I became a Christian after so much evidence I saw, I thought, well, how can you be a PhD scientist and not believe in God after the evidence I saw? And I became a Christian. It became life changing, even in prison. Almost to the point, I can tell you, it's like I became a free man in prison. And after earning with bonuses and stock options and base salary end up being It ended up being seven figures each year. And I was there almost seven and a half, almost eight years. I was $20 a month for eight years in prison. And they became some of the most productive years of my life. I helped with the education that I had. The education department would have me help inmates get their GEDs. Some inmates, they had a free program through Ohio University in Athens, Ohio, not Ohio State, but Ohio University. And I helped them get their, their two-year degrees in college. And I tell you, for the first time in my life at age 40, I was helping someone else besides myself. And I learned how, how rewarding it was to help other people. And they became some of the most productive years of my life were in federal prison at $20 a month.
0: You're released from federal prison in December of 2006. Uh, tell us about your life since then. Yeah, I've
1: been it's heading almost a couple decades. I got out at uh, 49 years of age. I'm 66 now as of uh, this month. So it's heading on a couple decades. And Cornell University, uh, one of those professors became a Christian. And he introduced me some biotech and pharmaceutical companies when I was in prison. And one of them, a Christian CEO started visiting me in prison, had me evaluate their patents, their strategic plans, and just to keep my mind active back in, in, in the biotech world. And it was very productive at a time you're in prison to be able to do that. And, and he was a Christian and he hired me literally the day I got out in December of 06, and 17 years ago. And he hired me as soon as I got out. I started off like the level of college. Eventually I became uh, a COO of that company. I'm still on the advisory board still today of that company. And I was COO for almost a decade in that company. And then I joined CBMC, the very group that reached out to me right before Chuck Colson that started sharing the gospel uh, with me and started introducing me to God, planted that initial seed. Chuck Colson watered it, but uh, CBMC planted that seed, and I joined them as national director for four years, and then I became their COO for four years. And then for the last four years, I've been with Coca-Cola Consolidated uh, the bottling company, not Coke in Atlanta, but we're the largest bottler in America. And our purpose statement at Coke Cola Consolidated is our only purpose to honor God And all we do by serving others, pursuing excellence and growing profit. We have a chaplain in every plant, 102 plant sites, over 100 prayer groups and Bible studies. And I lead all that, all that faith integration for Coke Consolidated. And it's just a, a miracle to work at a large company, but this time doing it God's way Thirty years later, compared to doing it my way, when I was involved in price fixing and trying to climb the corporate ladder, and I mean, the last couple decades since I've been out have been have been the most rewarding years of my life by by integrating faith and do, and and really following God's lead instead of my lead. My lead was a train wreck. I mean, end up in prison and prison for eight and a half years, and attempted suicide, and wearing a wire for three years. And in turn, God gave me a second chance. And now at a large company, again, I'm vice president of culture and care, integrating faith at work. And we also have T-Factor where we equip over 3,000 leaders just this year at nine different events. Christian leaders, how to integrate faith in their work, how they can see their work as a ministry. You don't have to go very far to find someone that don't know God. Uh, it, sometimes it's across the hall. You don't have to go to Haiti or South there. I, I have great admiration for the ones that do go on mission trips. But it's a mission trip right where we work. And, and I'm able to do that day in and day out at a company with 17,000 employees.
0: So, yeah, it sounds like you had um, what people would – probably perceive as, you know, you're in prison at one of your lowest moments, you have uh, people who are coming to you and really offering you second chances um, who didn't need to do that.
1: Yeah, I mean, Chuck Colson was a very busy man, CEO of Prison Fellowship. He was also Breakpoint Radio, had millions of listeners, Uh, Paul Willis, CEO of Cypress Biotech, had many things he could do besides visit me in prison, starting almost my last seven years of my sentence. So he came fairly early into my sentence for me to review uh, and assist in in what they were doing at Cypress Biotech. And and Ian Howes, who first reached out to me from CBMC, CFO of a pharmaceutical company. I never forget these individuals that reached out and gave me hope. And, and God touched their hearts. God gave me a second chance, and God touched their hearts. And they, and they gave me a second chance. And even the FBI agents, some of them started visiting me in prison and become some of my biggest cheerleaders today, the FBI agents. They've all, all my FBI agents and my prosecutor, have all written letters to the Justice Department and the White House asking for a presidential pardon. It takes about 20 years on average to be out of prison, and I'm heading on that. But they've all written letters on my behalf for a presidential pardon. After everything I did to them, they totally forgive me for the mistakes that I've made.
0: You mentioned earlier when we were talking about the difference between living a life of success and a life of significance. Um, Talk more about what that means to you and in particular about whether or not you think that that kind of a message, you know, so you studied the sciences when uh, you were in school. Um, Let's bring in both that and people who study business. Do you think the distinction between those two, do you think we're doing a good job of teaching younger people what the difference between those two are?
1: No. No. I don't. I, I, I don't. I think I think it. they didn't do a good job even when I was in college from 1975 at Ohio State to 1983 when I finished Cornell with a PhD. And I think it's even uh, worse today in secular. Uh, I should say in secular uh, universities and secular high schools. I don't think we do a good job. We do a good job there. And all I heard was is get as much education as you can get, and then to try to move up the corporate ladder, get the biggest title you can get at the biggest company you can get, uh, be a part of. And and I tell you, I found how unrewarding that was. When people would drive by my home, uh, the almost seven and a half, eight years when I was uh, in, in outside of Decatur, in Milwaukee, Illinois, where I lived, lived in a mansion. Two previous CEOs lived in that home eight car garage with full of eight cars, including a Ferrari, Mercedes, BMWs, had horse riding stables with an inside arena, access to one of our corporate jets, the level I was. And I had a void in my heart, the size of Grand Canyon. And that would have when people said, that's a successful man. 32 years old, he has everything. And, and those were probably the most void, the most empty years of my life. And then I'm in prison at $20 a month in assisting people to get their GEDs, discipling people, introduce them to God and Jesus, using the same discipleship programs that Chuck Colson used with me. And that became a life of significance. I learned then through experience, by experiencing both, the life of trying to be the way the world defines success and, and, and what God would say from a life of significance, living God's life that God wants us to live, I learned firsthand that a life of significance is so much more rewarding, even to the point where eight years of prison were productive.
0: So I, I feel I have to ask you about, um, there, if the story sounds familiar to any of our listeners, it may be because you saw the 2009 movie, the informant, which was made about your life. Um, did you have much or any involvement or how much did you know about these this is after you're out of prison when the film comes out um how much did you know about the film being made and uh, i presume you've seen it um what you know what was your reaction to you know this uh part of your life um being turned into a form of entertainment starring matt damon
1: well, uh, Matt Damon, we got to know him. We went to the premiere with Matt Damon, and he had actual, one of my actual ties that I wore ADM. He had one of the ties, the actual business card he used in the movie, was my actual ADM, one of my business cards from ADM. Uh, the watch he had on was actual the watch, that one of the watches that I wore during the time that I worked uh, at ADM. And we got to see the movie. They brought us, flew us out to Warner Brothers about six months before the movie came out. In 09. The movie came out in September. So this would have been the spring of 09. And we saw the movie, my wife and I. And but uh I think my wife probably was more because she had such a an impact on this whole case happening. And they kind of allude to that in the movie, but it was so much stronger in reality where that case wouldn't have happened without her. And they didn't show any of her faith, they didn't show any of my faith uh after you know prison. It kind of ended kind of when I got out of prison, so it, it really misses the last 25 years uh, of my life, and, and and so it kind of missed the whole faith journey, and it was kind of comical. It was like Ocean's 11, Ocean's 12, which he's the same director, and so my wife said, uh, I remember her telling one of the Warner Brothers attorneys as we we're walking out, she said, I really couldn't relate. She said, it's entertaining, a good movie, but she said, I really could, reta- could not relate to that being our life, uh, She said, I felt like we lived the firm, the Tom Cruise story, you know, where it was a really serious, a really serious case and a company was really out to get us. She said, I felt like we lived the firm uh, and I didn't. She said, I didn't feel like. So I would say that we felt like really the movie didn't relate to how they even they filmed a suicide attempt. They took it out because they felt like it didn't fit a comedy. They filmed the the blowing the driveway off at three in the morning, but they also felt like that was leading to a suicide attempt, so it was too serious. So they took it out. Some of the best parts they filmed, I think, would have been better leaving in. So we were able to see those parts they filmed, but they were not in the in the final uh, the final movie. The FBI was so upset with the movie, they did a documentary indicator called Undercover on Discovery Channel. And that's on my website, markwhitaker.com. That came out after the movie because the FBI wanted a, a legacy on the case. That's the three real FBI agents in that documentary, all retired so they could talk openly. And it has my wife and I on there. And like I said, it's on the homepage of markwhitaker.com. And I think people watch the Discovery Channel documentary. We've had many people say, that's a whole different story than the movie. And it's not that the documentary has our faith journey, it's just about the case, but I think it shows it in a more serious manner. you know, With the suicide attempt and the stress I was under, I I think it showed a more serious, uh, kind of a more serious form of the story than the movie did. The movie was entertaining, we enjoyed meeting them. We got to share a little bit about our faith with uh, Matt Damon. We gave him a copy of our book, which is called Against All Odds, which has our faith journey had her, you know, the last 25 years in our book. So, you know, we got to share a little bit of our faith journey with him and his wife, Luciana.
0: Did Matt Damon at least get the mustache right in the film?
1: <laughs> I did have a mustache yeah, but in the late 80s and early 90s, which is what the movie was portraying when I joined ADM at 89. And from the time I stopped wearing a wire, like in 95. So yeah, that. but but most people did have uh, all the ones I worked for. It was pretty common at that time.
0: Mark two uh, questions as we come to a close here. So, um, it, it I can understand the reason why it was made into a film. I mean, this really is an incredible story, uh, and it brings you on this personal journey from you know where you were in a life of success to leading a life of significance. Um, I think most people's or a lot of people's reaction to hearing a story where someone spends eight and a half years in prison would be to say, you know, you um, you have a lot of regrets in your life. Do you regret any of uh, what's transpired in your life?
1: Oh, absolutely. Uh, I mean, I look back, there's not a day go by that I don't look back and think about what my wife, my wife and kids to love me today. And I'm married 44 years, I mentioned here in a couple of weeks. For them to stay through me and with me and love me today is a miracle of God. It is. I mean, I took ripped up a six-month plea agreement and blamed my wife on the case only to get eight and a half years instead uh, when I could have went to federal prison for six months. And so, yes, there's not a day go by that I don't think about what I put my family through. But I don't take it lightly that God forgave me and redeemed me. God pardoned me even though I've not uh, been enough years out to get a, a federal uh, presidential pardon yet. A pardon from God is so much bigger. It's so much stronger. Uh, pr- pardon from a president really wouldn't change my life at all. I get to do every day exciting work at a great company. Uh, so yes, I do regret, but I do know that God forgave me and then God touched the heart of my wife and kids to forgive me and even touch the hearts of the FBI agents To forgive me, we actually went to Orange Beach with one of the FBI agents a few years ago on vacation with one and his wife. So for God to touch their hearts and write the kind of letters they they wrote on my behalf for presidential pardon and also my prosecutor is miracles of God. So I do regret, but I know God forgave me.
0: Final question for you, Mark. You're... Let's rewind to when you're in your early 30s, you're at ADM. This is when you're finding out about what's going on with price fixing um, and then thinking, as you described, that like this is just the way all of this works. Um, what do you wish that somebody had told you Back then, if you had had someone who had uh, mentored you uh, in uh, productively mentored you um, for that period of your life, what do you wish someone had told you back then? And similarly, what would you tell young people who are getting into the business world, who would be attracted to the trappings of the same kinds of things that you described houses, cars, private jets, money, and all of that? What do you wish you'd been told, and, and what would you tell them today?
1: I wish I would have met uh, in my late 20s, or early 30s, a Ian Howells and a Chuck Colson who first reached out to me as I'm going to federal uh, prison when, because they didn't know me before. They read about me in the newspaper. This is when there were actual newspapers and not everything was online uh, during, that, during that period of time. But I wish I would have had someone mentored me like that, like I did end up getting back then. The only mentors I had was really showing me how to price fix in the largest price fixing case in 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 US history. Um uh, and I wish that in part of that mentorship where where I would have been described to me is mark shoot for a life of significance not a life of success. This is going to be nothing but an empty life which you're which you're shooting for now. It's going to be an empty life. I you know I experienced that but I wish I would have been told that before like the mentors that I have in my life now. And I do have a chance to mentor lots of young people in our company and also outside of our company. I've maybe mentored two in federal prison, uh, like Chuck Colson and Ian House did me. And I share that message with them. And I share a lot about God. I wish I would have had the same discipleship about God and even breaking down the science block that I had that ended up happening in prison. I wish that would have happened much earlier in, in my life where I saw that there are scientists that believe in God. It just wasn't shared with me at the universities that, that I was at. That So I didn't even know about a life of significance versus life of success. And I wish I would have had that message a lot earlier.
0: Mark Whitaker is an Ivy League PhD and the highest-ranked executive of any Fortune 500 company to become a whistleblower in U.S. history, and is responsible for uncovering the ADM price-fixing scandal in the early 1990s. His undercover work with the FBI during the ADM scandal was the inspiration for the major motion picture The Informant, starring Matt Damon as Whitaker. Today, he is executive director at Coca-Cola Consolidated. Mark Whitaker, thank you so much for joining us today on Act in Line.
1: Thank you, and thanks for having me.
0: As always, thank you for listening. Our team loves putting this podcast together for you. It's encouraging to hear from our listeners. Feedback is incredibly important to us because it lets us know what you'd like to hear more of, including the kinds of topics you're interested in most. If you have comments, feedback, or ideas for a show topic or interesting guest, you can email our team at producer at acton.org. Until next week, for Acton Line, I'm Eric Cohn.